once again. I want to take a minute before the sermon to remind you about something called Realm. It's an app on your phone. Um, the note down there. Uh, it's an app on your phone. It looks like uh, you can, I'll see it up on the screen here in a second. Uh, if you're looking for it in the app store, it looks like that. Uh, called Realm Connect, and uh, it's accessible by computer through our website. What we put on Realm is only for our congregation, so it's not public, and it's really handy in a few different ways. Our church directory is there, so you can contact others in the church. Church news goes on there. We push out one item a day, and some of those are important things that don't quite make the cut in our weekly emails due to space constraints. Uh, like somebody says, I'm giving away this couch. Who wants it? Or so-and-so is coming back to town to visit this weekend. So we stay up to date on family happenings that way. And our giving is on Realm, which has massively simplified the giving process. So if you haven't, you do want to download that Realm Connect app uh, or access it on your computer. And then log in using the email address that we have on file for you, whatever email address you've given us in the past. If you're having a hard time at all getting signed in, uh, just contact the church office and we'd love to help you navigate that. Looking forward to getting in the word together this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. That's the exhale that I imagine that I would exhale if I were rich. And maybe I shouldn't say that, but that's kind of honest. Uh, how would you exhale if you were rich? Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof imagined it like this. I wouldn't have to work hard, right? Talks about a big tall house with rooms by the dozen. The third staircase leading nowhere just for show. Remember the song, right? But then Perchik responds that money's the world's curse, to which Tevya chirps back, may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. <laughs> and part of why we laugh at that line is because it's so relatable. Like sure, our parents taught us money isn't everything. We quickly turned right around and taught our own kids money isn't everything. But then privately, we kind of fantasize about that. That exhale represents a lot of things. We could call it being set, like life secured against the things we fear could conceivably go wrong, peace of mind that it's all taken care of. It's that moment that we fantasize about someday in the future which, in which we finally made enough. We can stop worrying about our financial future and just relax. Because we made it. And every weekday, including tomorrow morning, really smart and really motivated men and women in the financial industry will gather in meeting rooms in Chicago and New York and Hong Kong to figure out how to keep you and me dreaming of that exhale. Case in point, a few years ago, I logged into my bank account one day to be greeted with a prompt inviting me to fill out some questions to identify my exhale number. Anybody else? Did you see what I'm talking about? They don't call it an exhale number, of course, but it's phrased like, 
hey, since inflation's crazy and everybody lives till 90 now and healthcare is expensive and you're not so selfish as you want your poor kids to have to take care of you, this is, what, this is the number you need to retire. If you hit this number, then you don't have to panic anymore. Let us help you make a plan to hit that number. So we download their app. We keep an eye on our net worth every day, strategize on our investments, all with the goal to exhale one day. But in today's scripture, Jesus directly addresses that mindset. And what he has to say might be surprising. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> As we've now explored six or seven of Jesus' parables this summer, we've seen that some require a good amount of explanation. Not many of us are day laborers or farmers or make our own bread or know what a mustard bush looks like. So we've had to research those aspects of the story that would have been obvious to Jesus' original hearers. And then with the help of that background knowledge, we've gotten angry or confused or shaken up or stunned the way Jesus' original hearers were. But with a few of Jesus' other parables, our world is similar enough to the world Jesus is addressing that without much explanation needed at all, we instinctively react in the same way Jesus' hearers would have. And this parable, maybe as much as any other Jesus tells, is one of those. It does, what us, it does to us what it did to them. Like right before Jesus gets to the punchline of this parable, we're tracking with the main character. Like, wow, smart guy. Only to find out that Jesus has presented this man as the opposite of who we're supposed to be. To put it differently, this main character only does what all our financial advisors, golf buddies, and mom influencers would tell us to do for our financial future. Yet, Jesus says, this guy got it all wrong. Quick background on Luke 12 before we jump in. Some of you may remember I preached a sermon on this a few years back that included this parable, but during that sermon I was only able to spend a few minutes on the parable itself. Today the parable gets our full attention. Jesus has been teaching, he's been gaining a following as a Jewish rabbi, some like him, some hate him. This particular parable comes as a response to a man who calls out to Jesus from the crowd. So we'll see today the occasion for the parable, the parable itself, and the punchline. Occasion, parable, punchline. First, the occasion. Verses 13 to 15 of Luke 12. Based on how these interactions seem to tend to go, I think I would have been nervous to call out to Jesus from the crowd looking for a response. Yet here we have it. This parable is given by Jesus in response to a live interaction in, initiated by a man who speaks up from the crowd. Take a look. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Inheritance law at this time was pretty straightforward. In most instances, every son gets a share. The firstborn son gets two shares. And Jesus, as a respected Jewish rabbi, is well qualified to adjudicate a matter like this. In other words, it would have been common for people to go to a rabbi asking for a judgment on an issue like this one. Uh, the rabbis are presumably people of integrity. They knew the law better than anybody. But notice, though, this man's not actually looking or asking for arbitration is he in actuality what's he doing he's he hasn't phrased this as a question he's making a demand of jesus namely that jesus take his side those of us who've ever felt wronged can maybe relate this man seems to believe deeply justice is on his side in this matter he calls out to jesus because he's confident that jesus will agree with him so what's jesus going to do is he going to ask for details how deeply is jesus going to wade into this friend Jesus said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them 
Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 14 almost sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm unqualified to speak on this. But remember, a rabbi like Jesus is exactly the sort of person most qualified to help with something like this. So why would Jesus ask this? With this question, I think that Jesus actually is prodding us to sincerely consider what the answer to this question is. Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? What's the answer? Who did? God did, right? Jesus is the judge of all of us. Appointed by God, and as such, he's answerable only to God. And that means everything for how Jesus intends to go about his judging and arbitrating. See, if we, you and I, had voluntarily elected to appoint Jesus as our judge and arbitrator, then he'd answer to us. Then it would be reasonable for us to expect him to fulfill our expectations of justice, as this guy does. But if God is the one who made Jesus my judge, then sometimes disrupting or overturning my agenda is precisely what Jesus intends to do. Anybody? Anybody had their plans derailed by Jesus? Yeah, because it's not his job to obey us. He answers to the God who appointed him. But then do you notice how Jesus steps back from just this one man to speak to the whole crowd? He said, he, he then told them. He sets the table for a discussion on greed. Greed? If I'm this guy, I'm like, bro, Jesus, I just asked you to help me get my fair share. Right? I'm not asking for more than what's rightfully mine. Why are you implying that I'm greedy? What do you think? Unfair cheap shot by Jesus? Why the sudden pivot to greed? Well, A, he's Jesus in those hearts. But B, I think the key may be in this easily overlooked word, all, here. All greed. Not just watch out and be on guard against greed, but be on guard against all greed. Which implies that there are different kinds of greed. Different species of greed, as one preacher put it. And if some of the species of greed that Jesus has in mind are sneaky enough that we have to watch out for them at all times, to be on guard against them constantly, then those of us who don't think we're greedy are precisely the ones who might be blindly falling into greed's trap without being aware of it. In other words, in context, I think we need to say that maybe it's possible, even in the midst of a very legitimate financial concern on which we're actually on the side of justice, it may still be possible, even in that situation, to be ensnared by greed as we advocate for what's rightly ours. And if it's possible to be guilty of greed, even in a legitimate and just dispute, it has to have something to do with this explanatory line, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. That last line is the segue into the following parable in which Jesus effectively takes five verses to flesh out that one line. Before we go there, though, I need to ask, do we see ourselves in this man from the crowd? Inheritance conflicts are far from a thing of the past. Maybe this is exactly what you happen to be in the midst of right now as an elderly parent has passed away or is nearing the end. Or maybe you have some, sort of, some other sort of legitimate gripe, a reasonable plea for fairness that hasn't been met yet met. All I'm saying is before we say, 
oh, that greedy guy in the crowd. That's not me. This parable is not directed at me. I'd love for us to be more honest with ourselves about how very much like this man we can be at times. If it's not, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's tell my insurance company to cover my whole claim. Tell my airline to refund my ticket. Tell my business partner I need my full cut. Are any of those inherently sinful? No. But if our hearts have ever been in any of those places, asking any of those kinds of questions, it would be such a mistake to imagine I've dodged this parable because Jesus is really aiming this parable at some hedge fund manager whose Sheridan Road mansion overlooks the lake. They're the greedy ones, right? What I'm saying this morning is whatever other scriptures happen to be aimed at that guy on Sheridan Road, this one's aimed at you and me. Amidst even our commonplace legitimate gripes, our valid arguments for justice, Jesus says, hold up, I'm not primarily interested in making that right for you right now, but I am very interested in something else, namely, how's your heart as you're experiencing this injustice? Our life is not in the abundance of our possessions. Our life is not in the abundance of our possessions. Now Jesus gives a parable that illustrates that by way of a negative example. Here it is. Verses 16 to 20. First, the main character runs into a problem. Let's take a look. Verse 16. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? Notice a few things here. The main character of this parable is already wealthy before the massive harvest comes. He's a rich man. There's no hint whatsoever that this wealth was ill-gotten. Nothing to prompt us to imagine this guy is some sort of exploitative villain. Already rich, then the land is very productive. And it's productive to the point at which he runs into a storage issue. So many crops, he has no place to put them. Because no moral failure seems to have brought about this problem, this is a legitimate conundrum that any of us would have to figure out if in his shoes. But notice also, the frequency of I and my. What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? And that almost comically self-focused pattern is going to continue in the verses to come if you scan ahead. When I love Jesus' masterful storytelling, do you notice in verse 16, he didn't say uh, the man was very productive. What's Jesus say? The land is very productive. And by emphasizing that the land is very productive... Jesus reminds us, in contrast to the eyes and mys throughout this passage, that God brought this man his crop. True? And as such, God brought this man his wealth. Nevertheless, this man has a real decision to make. And we'd love to see this man going to God in prayer, or at least working this out in community, talking to trusted friends and family who can give him wisdom. Instead, his money seems to have left him lonely, as money so often does. And so in what would have been especially notable in the communal culture in which Jesus lives, this man seems to be working all this out on his own in a conversation with himself in his own head. He thought to himself. So his question at this point internally is, what should I do? Too many crops to store. We aren't told what options he considers in his head during this internal conversation, but we do learn what he decides. I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones. 
store all my grain and my goods there, and then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Exhale. And all the financial advisors said, wise move, prudent. And doing this is even easier today, by the way, because we don't even have to tear down any barns. Your account summary page at MerrillLynch.com is ready-made with the ability to electronically accommodate as many zeros as you're able to put there. And then maybe when you hit your insured limit at one firm, you just make sure to diversify your investments in multiple holdings, maybe multiple countries. Just make sure you're covered all your bases and keeping it all secure from potential adverse conditions. You say, come on, preacher. What's so bad about that? You want me to be slaving away in a cubicle till I'm 80? Shouldn't we be prepared to get to spend our last years eating, drinking, and enjoying ourselves? So let's go there for a second. Come on, don't we envy this guy a little bit? Forget for a second that this parable is titled The Rich Fool. That biased us against him from the start. Just think about if this guy had you over for dinner. Wouldn't we look around his setup and fantasize a little? Like, ah, oh, this would feel amazing. To be set for the rest of our lives? Aren't we teaching our kids to invest while they're young so that they can achieve this very exhale? I appreciated how simply one preacher put it at this point in the parable. <clears throat> how can we and God think so differently? And which of us is more likely to have gotten it wrong? If we're interested in exploring where this man went wrong, we might notice again all the eyes and my's popping up. I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, the question, the barns, the grain, the goods, are these all his? One more note here on something I wouldn't have caught. The language of tearing down and building here. Jesus' hearers would have recognized this as prophetic language. Tearing down and building is, for example, what Jeremiah was commissioned to do back in the day. But this is sort of it's like a bizarro type of version of the prophetic tearing down and building. Instead of sacrificing oneself to suffer in the interests of God, like Jeremiah did as a prophet, this guy is treating himself, tearing down and building only to further his own interests. He's looking forward to his I made it moment, his exhale, fantasizing about it. And just then, for the only time in any New Testament parable, God himself appears as a character in the narrative. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? God doesn't directly call people fools too often in Scripture. One notable exception is in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, both which, both which state that the person who says there's no God, that person's a fool. Why? Because foolishness in the Bible is the opposite of wisdom. And wisdom, according to the Proverbs, starts with the fear of the Lord, which is why to say there's no God, that's the ultimate in foolishness. But we don't get any indication this rich guy in our story doesn't believe in God. So why does God call him a fool? 
commentators have pointed out over the years. No matter whether this guy would have claimed to believe in God, he's functionally going about his business as though there is no God. Whatever his formal beliefs, in other words, he, like many professing Christians today, is a practical atheist. If he had been mindful of God, he would have been conscious of the fact that his life could be demanded of him at any moment. To use the language of verse 20 here. That's the language used when uh, calling in a loan, by the way. I lent this to you, now I'd like it back, right? And so in this language, we're reminded that the one making this demand is the actual owner of the crops the guy said were his. The actual owner of the barns that he said were his. The grain that he said was his. The goods that he said were his. Oh, and remember his last my, back in verse 19? I'll say to myself. Turns out that was on loan too. His self, his life, his soul. It all belonged to God all along, including his life. And God can require it from us at any time. If we prepared appropriately for that occasion, we look forward to God calling it in. But if we haven't prepared appropriately, we're right to be terrified about that prospect. We're foolish not to be. But that's the thing. God knows that this guy isn't appropriately terrified by that prospect. So notice what God doesn't say to this man. He doesn't say, you should have lived for a higher purpose. God knows this guy doesn't care about that. He doesn't say, you really should have given some of this away. God knows that's not going to strike a nerve. Instead, God speaks to this man in the only language this man can understand, namely the language of self-absorption. Hey, did you ever think about who's going to get your stuff? The only thing that could possibly horrify this guy is the thought of someone else enjoying what he worked for. So God's willing to make his appeal, even at that level. Listen, that, in reality, that scenario of someone else benefiting from this man's excess, that should have happened voluntarily in the first place. You hear me? In other words, others shouldn't have had to wait for his death to benefit from his surplus. Because, even though this isn't the main point of the parable, biblically, our excess doesn't belong to us. Earlier centuries of Christians have maybe understood this much better than we do. If you've ever taken the time to read medieval Christians, for example, you've got these lovely reflections, and we're sometimes horrified by these moments of racism and sexism sprinkled in in their writings, right? Their blind spots are so glaring to us that we're tempted to write them off. Uh, like, how could these people truly be Christians? Right? No way they're in heaven. You ever had an experience like that, reading an old Christian? But here's something to consider as we get up on our high horses, right? Those generations of Christians were incredibly generous. It was characteristic of them to keep only what they needed and give away the rest. And so, not at all to excuse their blind spots and sins, some of which were very serious, but it might not be such a crazy thought that today, if they were to be transported into our time, they might feel the same about us and our wealth as we do about them and their sins. Namely, how can these people truly be Christians? There's never been a greater gap between rich and poor than the one that exists in the year 2023, and these churchgoers are participating in it. I'm painting with a broad brush. But the reality is that the norm for Christians centuries ago 
was much more generous than it is today when the average Christian churchgoer gives 2.5% of their income. Latest studies. Christians in the past were much more likely to stand in the tradition of Augustine, for example, who commented on this parable as follows. Speaking of the rich man, he was planning to fill his soul with excessive and unnecessary feasting and was proudly disregarding all those empty bellies of the poor. He didn't realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. And one more from Augustine again. A man stores grain on a damp floor and needs to move it upstairs lest it spoil. Thus, treasure to be kept must be stored in heaven, not on earth. See, it spoils down here, is what he's saying. Earthly treasure. The perspective of Christians in generations past was, well, if God has given it to us, he's given it to us for heavenly purposes, including for distribution to others in need. And that means I'm not just responsible for just me. See? The character in our parable makes the mistake of thinking he's only responsible for himself. In reality, though, he's only scratching the surface of his responsibility for others that his wealth has incurred for him. Once we have more, we become responsible for more in the lives of others around us. But even to think that way is so countercultural where we live, isn't it? To actually live this way in our world is almost impossible without taking actions that might be considered extreme. I've read about a family who dents their car with a baseball bat every time they get a new one so they won't overly love their vehicles. Don't think that's actually necessarily helpful. But Sarah and I have had moments where we've said to each other, like, listen, we've had a few of these in our marriage. Listen, at this moment, we, we have got to do something to radically separate us from our stuff right now because we can feel that it's starting to wrap its tentacles around us. You ever had that feeling? So I guess I'll just speak for us when I say this, but at least for us, for my family, if we're not taking what feel like extreme and painful measures to be generous, we know we'll never drift into that. You know what I'm saying? Like if we drift, there's, we're only ever going to drift into providing for ourselves. And providing for ourselves turns out to be quite short-sighted. I didn't misspeak on that. I, I meant that. It turns out to be short-sighted, which is counterintuitive because our advisors tell us that these exact same measures taken by this man in the parable are what it looks like to take the long view. But, verse 20, as Christians, we can see that the long view in the eyes of the financial services sector is actually a blink of an eye compared to the truly long view that we're called to prepare for. I've brought a rope out here before once, the length of the stage, some of you remember that? Uh, with a tiny piece of red tape on one end, just right down here, like this big. And the rope extends the whole rest of the stage. Uh, representing the 70 or 80 years that we spend in this present earthly life. That's the red tape compared to our eternal existence. With God's speech in verse 20, this rich man has found himself facing a world of problems, new problems, eternal problems that he is utterly unprepared for. Here's the 70 years of his life, here's eternity, right? Congrats, you've got the blink of an eye problem solved in your life. You've successfully made sure you have no more worries for this portion of your life all the way down here, right? But what about the rest? 
What about this other portion that spans from there all the way down to there? Right? What have you done about these worries? Finally, the punchline. Now Jesus is done with the parable. He's going to bring it home with a takeaway. Here's what he says. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, it's not that storing up treasure is wrong. It's where we store it up. As one pastor said, it's not about how much stuff we have. It's about how much our stuff has of us. Being rich isn't sinful. It's the direction in which our riches are aimed. Thinking about that word toward. Where is it aimed? Are we rich toward ourselves or are we rich toward God? And it's worth unpacking for a moment in terms of what does it look like practically. Let's think about it. How do we store up treasure in heaven? How do we live in a way that's rich toward God? What does that look like in practice? First, we give, right? Generously, past the pain point. One model many have found to be in line with scriptural pattern is to give to our local church first, regular recurring gifts, sacrificial gifts, a certain percentage we've determined God wants us to give. Then many of us have set up regular recurring gifts beyond our local church to other works, missionaries, church plants, parachurch agencies doing great work. And then there's the occasional one-time gifts that we find ourselves able to give because we had unexpected money drop into our laps. We were planning for life without that money. And so now we say, well, why not invest this unexpected windfall into those who could use it? But being rich toward God is a bigger category than just giving. After all, Jesus could have easily said, that's how it is for the one who stores up treasure for himself and does not give some of it away. Could have said that, didn't. And here's why. Because it's possible to give money away, even to give lots of money away, and still not be rich toward God. We can give money away for a write-off or to look good or to get in someone's good graces. We can give 20% away for good reasons and then use the other 80% of it for ourselves. Being rich toward God isn't less than giving, but it's so much more than just giving, right? Being rich toward God involves orienting our whole beings toward him. It's surveying the whole of what we have and saying, okay, what can I offer to God today? It's praying in earnest, God, I want you to have all of this. It's all yours. Show me how to use it for your purposes. That's being rich toward God. We've got a backyard. Kids, let's think about how we can use this backyard to bless our neighbors and invite them into experience of the love of Christ. Oh, I've got a few, hour, a few hours free this Tuesday afternoon. How can I use those hours to honor you, Lord? Oh, we've got an extra room in our house with some extra beds. How can we use this room and these beds to bless some people who need a bed to sleep in? Oh, I've got a leadership position at work. How can I use my secular authority to model something subversively Christ-like to my subordinates? Right? That's being rich toward God. It's, it's so natural, though, to fail to be rich toward God. I mean, think back to the original request brought to Jesus that made him tell this parable in the first place. Remember the guy who told Jesus to... Uh, tell his brother to divide the inheritance what has jesus now communicated to that guy through this parable i think it's something like this <clears throat> hey friend there's something even more dangerous than you not getting the inheritance you deserve 
It's that you would get the inheritance that you justly deserve without ever dealing with the greed that's in your heart. That greed in there is much more of a threat to your future than the lost inheritance would be. I think there's got to be something in that for us, right? Maybe God is saying to someone here this morning, hey, there's something more threatening than not being able to retire when you would like. There's something more threatening than being stuck in a house that's too small for your family. There's something more threatening than being out a few thousand dollars. What's truly threatening is a subtle form of greed that's found a home in your heart that you didn't even notice or know about. Our big idea today is this. Since everything we have is on loan, let's be rich toward God. Since everything we have is on loan, let's be rich toward God. If I was a rich man, you know, maybe I would buy my family a house in which everybody could have their own room. Maybe I'd buy a new shirt or a new set of golf clubs. Would it be sin to do so? Like, isn't it possible to make those purchases without, uh, while being rich toward God? Maybe. Maybe not. I've shared this D.A. Carson quote once before, but it's too good not to share it again. The problem isn't wealth itself, he says. The Bible bears witness to some rich people who use their wealth for God, some people who are not so attached to their wealth that it became a surrogate God. Yet, one hesitates to point out this fact. For most of us are so good at deceiving ourselves that we inevitably think this concession lets us off the hook. The critical reminder in this passage is, hey, it's all on loan. Any day now, the Lord is going to call it in. What am I going to have to show him on that day? Sam Alberry helpfully suggests how this dialogue in our parable should have gone. I'll put the two side by side on the screen. Here's how the monologue actually went. Ah, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Our friend, our friend here probably should have said something like this. God, I have ample goods. I might have many years. This stuff is yours. How can I use it? What if that was our prayer this morning? God, I have ample goods. I might have many years. This stuff is yours. How can I use it? We're going to make some time right now for us to actually pray this prayer and reflect on what the Lord might have each of us do. I don't know what the Lord's calling anyone here to do. I do think we ought to be open to the idea that he may be calling some of us to take a drastic step especially if we haven't given consideration to the deceitfulness of riches in a while. You've heard the statistics I've heard that you, if you're a family of four, for example, bringing in just $60,000 a year, you're making eight times more than the global average, and you're in the top 8% of wealthiest families in the world. I bring up stats like that from time to time just to ask, if we North Shore suburbanites aren't the ones in danger of getting deceived by wealth, who is? Whatever you do in the next few minutes, uh, please don't pray through this as some sort of task uh, or duty that Jesus has given us so that we could earn his favor. As if we could, should all just muster up the willpower today to be a little more rich toward God this week. You know, 
instead, I'd love to invite us to reflect on the one who's telling this parable, our Lord Jesus. Instead of hoarding what he had in heaven and hearing from God, who's going to get what's yours, he asked the question, to whom can I give what's mine? And he made us co-heirs with him. Sharers in his eternal inheritance as he laid down all of what was his for our sake. When he subjected himself to human form and then to the cross, he did so in order that you and I could share in the riches that were his. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to move into a few minutes of silent reflection before we do anything else. And the reason we do it right now is, you know how it goes, you get home, you eat lunch, put your feet up, we'll push it out of our minds. I know I will. If we don't act on it while it's fresh. So if you're sensing this morning the Lord may be calling you to some sort of action today, moved by the generosity of Christ towards you, I'd just say, don't walk out these doors without making a concrete commitment to him and then following through on it without delay. And because we never know what God wants us to do in the context of a corporate assembly like this, we're going to have one mic up here at the front here in just a moment. The live stream is going to be muted, if you don't mind. We'll be back with you uh, if you're watching at home in a few minutes, but we're going to mute it for the next few minutes so we can keep these few minutes right here among ourselves as a family in person. Uh, But who knows, someone might feel stirred to make an out loud commitment of some sort regarding what you sense God calling you to in this passage. Revivals have started with less, so we do want to make space. If you want to share a commitment of how you're going to respond to this parable, just make your way up to the mic at any time in the next few minutes and have at it. Uh, Whether or not anyone shares anything uh, out loud after a few minutes of silent reflection I'll close us in prayer once again Lord during this time together we ask uh, that you would speak to our hearts we thank you for your word and for this parable and uh, we thank you for the abundance that you've given us and to the extent that each of us has been given uh, bountifully in some areas, uh, we ask that you give us wisdom and discernment to uh, be rich toward you using what you've given. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen.